Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you again. If you are visiting with us, perhaps for the first time, or you've not indicated your visit in the past, I would direct your attention to this little tear-off portion of the bulletin. Uh, we would invite you to fill this out and drop it in the offering box at the back or the information center uh, just to uh, let us know of your presence with us. If you have any prayer concerns or needs that you would like for us to pray for, please jot that down. I do promise that no one will come knocking on your door this afternoon and you will not be inundated with spam email if you fill this out. But it is uh, good for us to be able to know who's here and ways that we can minister to you. So uh, please be aware of that. My name is John Ravel. I am not on pastoral staff here. I am uh, one of you, but I do have the rich uh, joy and privilege of sharing from God's word from time to time. And it's, it's always good to be with you. And uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Before we get into God's word, why don't we pause? Let's ask him to bless our time. Father, we thank you for the reality of that last chorus we sang, you are indeed so good. We can lose sight of that in the midst of all of the insanity in the world. Uh, the world is unstable. It seems like the stage is, is shifting internationally on a daily basis, and it can be unnerving. We hear reports from across the country uh, of things that are wrong, evil, as has already been mentioned, and it is unsettling. And Father, we look to you. You are our only hope. You are the only one who has uh, the answers. You are the only one who has life. And so we humble ourselves before you this morning. Father, we confess our need. We confess our weakness. We confess our inability to control these things in and of ourselves. We ask that you would work. Father, touch our hearts right now. Accomplish your purposes in and through these incredible passages. We thank you for your word, the living word, Jesus Christ, who opened the door for us to have this intimate relationship with you through his death on the cross, but also the written word that you've given us so that we can know you and what you desire of us. So bless this time. Accomplish your purposes despite the speaker and his flaws. You know them. They are many. But you are good, and you accomplish great things through sinful people. So bless this time and work in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What difference does it make? I woke up this morning very stiff, very achy. We had our kids and our grandkids up for the weekend. And the grandkids, two seven-year-old uh, granddaughters, twins, fraternal twins, and a five-year-old uh, grandson, and they like to play rough with their grandfather. And I confess, I like to play with them. But they have this game where they would run around the living room and they run and then they charge. I'm sitting in the rocking chair like an old grandfather does. And they run and they charge and they crash into me and I wrap my arms around them and they're trapped and they struggle and they scream and they say, let us go, let us go. And then I let them go and they run again and then over and over again. Well, this morning, my neck's a little stiff, my <laughs> arms are a little achy, and, and uh, so what do I do? I take some ibuprofen, because you expect a change to come. When you are achy, when you are stiff, you take medication, because you expect it to make a difference, and I'm grateful that it did. 
because I can actually move up here. I have noticed of late that my mid-range is starting to expand again. So when that happens, what do you do? You adjust your diet. You restrict yourselves to some of the things that you might enjoy, some of the sugar, some of the carbs. I love bread. I love butter. I love bacon. Uh, and I also like to sit in the rocking chair. Those things are not conducive to reducing the mid-range. They help expand the mid-range. So if I want to make a difference, I need to reduce some of those carbs, some of those sugars, some of those fats. I need to increase the caloric consumption, or combustion, rather. The equation is reduced caloric consumption, increased caloric combustion. And that means exercising. I promise you, if I adjust my diet and hold back on the things that I really enjoy, and I start exercising and having those aches and pains, and there's no impact, guess what? I'm not going to keep doing it. Because I expect that price that I'm paying to have a benefit, to make a change, to make a difference. What if we applied that concept into this whole study we've been doing on Christ and his work on the cross and what he's done in us and what he's doing and the change it's supposed to make in us? This passage this morning, I was telling dear sister, this passage is the essential crescendo of the book of Colossians. The first two chapters are rich, deep theology. And it builds to the point, like Rich brought us last week, to the ending of uh, this incredible section that is rich. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it starts to go into the difference that it makes. And this is consistent. This, there is, in recap... We have, in this book, we have the theological foundation, and then we have the practical application. And that's consistent with Paul's writings. Uh, if you look at Romans, the first 11 chapters, rich theology, rich uh, details about who God is and what he's done. And then starting in chapter 12, verse 1, I therefore urge you by the mercies of Christ to make yourselves, your bodies, a living sacrifice. And then in Ephesians, the first, same thing. First three chapters are incredible, rich theology about who God is. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of Christ, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then the rest of the book gives some practical details. And that's what Paul has done here. We have uh, the first two chapters are rich theology. Go ahead and hit the next uh, slide, guys. Rich theology. And then starting in 3, uh, verse 1, we have the practical application. So for us to get the full measure of what Paul, what God, what the Holy Spirit has given us this morning, we need to do a brief time of recap. So the first thing that we've seen in the first two chapters is the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the King. Four times in verses 1 through 4, and we'll get to this in a minute, 
Paul refers to Jesus as Christ, literally the Christ. But throughout the first two chapters, there's this consistent reference to Jesus as Christ and Lord. And in the Jewish mind, and this is important for us to capture this so that we can appreciate the significance for us. In the Jewish mind, Christ, that, is, that word Christ is not just a name, it's a title that is synonymous with the Hebrew word Messiah, which is synonymous with the overarching understanding and concept of king. Kingship was huge in that time. For us, kings don't make that much difference. Uh, It's things of ancient history and fairy tales. But in their day, a king represented three ultimates, the ultimate in reverence and respect, because they associated kings with deity in some regard. At the time, the Caesars were all viewed as a god. And so with the notion of kingship, there was this increased ultimate sense of reverence and respect. There was also a sense of ultimate authority. The king made the laws, and everyone was subject to those laws. And then there was ultimate ownership. The king owned everything in the kingdom. And when Jesus Christ, he was crucified, he was nailed on the cross, and his crime, what was nailed above him was the king of the Jews. He died. He was tried under Pilate because he was accused of being the king. And in a sense, he was guilty. And he admitted to that, that he was indeed the king. But for them, this notion was that Jesus is the king. And this feeds into this idea of the mystery that Paul has talked about in the first two chapters. Jesus is the king. He is the ultimate one deserving respect and reverence. He is the ultimate one who has absolute authority over everyone and everything. And he is the ultimate owner over everyone and everything, the heavens and the earth. So that was an essential emphasis on Jesus. The second is that Jesus was and is God in the flesh. In these verses, and you can look at these uh, on your own later, I won't read them, but you see this repeated emphasis that he is the image of God. He is the fullness of God. Rich has emphasized that there there was a heresy, a heretical theme floating around the Colossian church that minimized the person of Christ, that he wasn't maybe fully God, that maybe he was some kind of of uh, elevated angel or something. But Paul makes the point that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. He made the emphasis that Jesus created everything for himself and that he holds everything together. Now, again, this notion of authority. Who owns or who has authority over creation? The creator. Who has authority over the pot? that has been made? The potter. Who owns authority over the painting that has been done? The painter. Jesus made everything, created everything for himself, and he holds it all together. The next emphasis is that he is preeminent. He is the first. Now, again, this Colossian heresy was that he was somewhere in this 
They called it the pleroma or the fullness, this elevation, this ladder, these steps going up to the ultimate. And they plugged Jesus in there somewhere, but Paul says, no, he is the first. Also, he is the head of the church. The church could get caught up in Colossians, could get caught up in this sense of who's in charge here. Paul reminded them that Jesus is in charge. And then the passage that I really appreciated and how Rich dealt with it, that he is the, uh, he dwells in his people, the hope of glory. And again, this, this is the mystery that here is the almighty king of the universe, God in the flesh, the one who created everything, that he came to earth and that he died and that he actually, after rising again, he dwells in his people. That was mind-boggling to the Jewish Christians in the first century, that the king of the universe would actually die and dwell in us. And then it leads to the last of this recap portion, that he paid the ultimate price, nailing our sins to the cross, defeating the forces of darkness so that we could be reconciled to him. All of this incredible truth about who Jesus is and what it means for us. And so it builds to this point where we get to chapter 3, verse 1, but I'd like to look at all of these together and review them together. Because the heresy that affected the first century church, or that was present, I believe has somehow impacted all of us in our understanding of Christ today. We are subject to a redirecting of the role and the person of Christ to shape him into something that accommodates our purposes. First, Jesus is the Christ, the King. Our inclination, well, I won't speak for you. You may be able to relate to this. My inclination is to see myself as the King. I'm the one who deserves reverence and respect. If you're not going to give it to me, then you pay the price. I have authority over my life. And I own my house, my car, myself. The current heretical trend is to diminish the person of Christ in this role and elevate ourselves. At least... That's what I've noticed in myself. And it's important that as we enter into the last two chapters of this book, that we remember, I'm not the king. You're not the king. He's the king. He's worthy of all of our reverence and respect. He's worthy of our submission to his authority, and he is absolutely worthy of our recognition and yielding to his ownership over my life. He is God in the flesh. The tendency of human nature is to view ourselves as in some way God-like. Go back to Genesis 3. The deception that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve 
is that God knows if you eat this fruit, you will be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. And that was, that was the temptation, to see an elevated sense of self into the realm of deity. Maybe not ultimate deity, but at least some level of deity so that we can see ourselves as more special than we are. About 35 years or so ago, uh, actress Shirley MacLaine came out with a book. And some of you weren't even alive 35 years ago. But she, she was a prominent actress, and she became known as the, uh, the, uh, the priestess of the New Age movement. But she wrote a book called uh, Out on a Limb, sharing some of her experiences. And I'll never forget one of the chapters she talks about walking on a beach in Southern California and declaring at the top of her voice, I am, I am. And she said she had never experienced such a sense of fulfillment before she recognized the God that she was in her and that we all are. And her definition of atonement was at one meant with the God inside of us. In her subsequent book, uh, Dancing in the Light, the end of it, she, she details, she documents how she finally opened up and saw the deity that she was within her and that she was awestruck by this godlike image that she recognized was her godness. You know, some people look at it, well, she's wacky. And perhaps. But the reality is that we, our natural inclination is to reduce the person and work of Christ and elevate ourselves up to that point of deity. The third heretical inclination, he created everything for himself and holds everything together. My sense is that Jesus is there for me. I'm not there for him. He's there for me. So when I get in trouble, he's there to rescue me. That his purpose for existence is to get me out of my messes. He's some sort of, of uh, celestial Santa Claus that I can go sit on his lap and give him my wish list, and his purpose is to satisfy my needs. Or he's a, a heavenly lifeguard so that when I get into the deep water in the pool and I struggle, he jumps in and he saves me. That's our nature, is to reduce Christ to being in existence for my needs and my desires. And the reality is, it's the opposite. I believe humanity and, unfortunately, sometimes the church has been infected by a social virus more dangerous than COVID could ever be, the social virus of consumerism. Television commercials play into this that you deserve everything good. And you need to exercise your rights to get those things. And I've seen in several uh, workplaces the sign that says two rules. Rule number one, the customer is always right. Rule number two, if the customer is wrong, see rule number one. And don't we take that mindset into our relationship with God sometimes? This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I uh, expect. Therefore, your role is to provide that for me. 
And in reality, it's the reverse. We exist for him. He is preeminent. He's the top. He's number one. In my world, I want to be number one. He is the head of the church. Sometimes churches function as if he's a resource to be sought after when we have questions, but somehow we're in charge of the church. He dwells in his people, the hope of glory. We sometimes think that we have everything necessary for that hope. And he paid the ultimate price, nailing it to the cross, defeating the forces of darkness. My inclination is to think that I can conquer every force that comes against me. You know, I've been disturbed in recent days with some of the mindset that I've seen in brothers and sisters, well-intentioned, for sure, but this mindset that somehow we can be formulated into a, a type of special ops forces for Christ, that we're the Navy SEALs or the Marine Raiders, hurrah, or that we're Green Beret or something, and all we have to do is get together and we're going to storm the gates of hell and we're going to blow it away. Again, that's elevating our sense of ability. He's the one who destroys the forces of darkness. So with all of that rich doctrine, we then come into these first three, uh, uh, first few verses of chapter 3, verse 1. And this is where we start to see the difference. What difference does this make? So go ahead and put up uh, chapter 3, verse 1. If we can get there. I'll go ahead and read it as we're getting there. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What we have in the next few verses are four realities and four responses. In the Greek grammar, and pardon me for being a bit of a geek here, but in the Greek grammar, there are what's called indicative. That's the state of reality. And then the imperative, the command that flows out of that. So we have four realities that Paul's going to give us that this is the case, therefore, this is the action that is to be expected. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ. The word if could easily be translated since. We had some of the discussion a few weeks ago. There's, there are two kinds of if. If, and you're not sure if it's true. If, and you're confident that, that it's true. Let's, let's go uh, put it in, in uh, current terminology. Do we have any uh, Patriot fans in the audience? I'm sorry. I'm not really, but I'm supposed to say that. One way to use if is if the Patriots were to beat the Dolphins today, huh? then we're going to celebrate afterwards. But So it, it leaves the door open that that might be the case. The other way it's used is in a sense that you're assuming it's going to happen. If the sun comes up tomorrow, well, then I'm going to go to work. Well, you're expecting the sun to come up tomorrow. And that's the way Paul's using this. Since you have been raised with Christ, there is this expectation that we have been raised, because of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we've been raised with him. Therefore, the response is, Seek or pursue the things that are above. 
And I refer to this as transferred objectives. Now stop and pause for a second. What are your objectives in life? What are the things that you are striving to accomplish? If someone were to ask you, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? What are some of the things that you might list? In Christ, because we've been raised with him, uh, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, buried with uh, Christ in baptism, raised to walk in new uh, newness of life. So if we have been raised with him, what are the objectives that he would have us pursue? Uh, this goes back to uh, reminiscent of, of uh, Matthew chapter 6, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We've talked about the king. What are the king's objectives? And how should we be pursuing them? A few weeks ago, I sent uh, an email to uh, Jim and Bill describing some of my perspectives on the kingdom. And it's clear from Scripture that in the king's kingdom economy, the most precious commodities are people. So the most valuable assets in the king's kingdom are people. The, the uh, econ- or rather, the, the uh, form of of monetary use is the currency, is love. But the the way to determine profit or loss is the number of reconciled relationships, reconciliation with God and reconciliation with people. And in the king's kingdom economy, his objectives are people being reconciled with him and with each other through love. And so the king's objectives for us are not to be pursuing financial security as if that could really happen, or prominence in a position of leadership, or possession of larger homes or or cars or sound systems or whatever. Those are not kingdom kinds of objectives. And I'm not saying those things are wrong. But the objectives are to reflect the king's priorities and his objectives. So if we are truly raised with Christ, then we have this responsibility to reflect his objectives. The second reality in verses 2 and 3 Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the reality is we have died and our lives are hidden in him. That's, again, going back to Romans uh, chapter 5. We have died to ourselves and we were buried with Christ. And so this is part of the reality that flows out of the first two chapters. In Christ, I've died to myself. That's the reality. The response, I'm supposed to set my mind on the things that are above, not on earth. On the things that are above. Transferred or transformed obsessions. Let's pause. What are some of the things that we're obsessed with? We're obsessed with emotional 
peace and stability. We're obsessed with my comfort. I am. I'm, I, I can tell you, I, I spend time thinking about how can I be more comfortable. Uh, we're obsessed with health, physical, emotional. We're obsessed with a lot of things. And here's the check. When you sit and you just let your mind go, what do you think about? Where do your thoughts go? Are they directed towards particular individuals that, this is for the younger people, uh, that cute gal in class that you want to get to know? You know, we used to write love notes. Uh, I love you, do you love me, check yes or no. It's hard to do that in a text. You know, you lose something in the text. But we can, we can be obsessed with people. We can be obsessed with our individual state. We can be obsessed with a lot of things. But if we're in Christ, we're expected to focus our affections, our thoughts, on his priorities, not our own. Now it's a bit about to get a little uncomfortable. Because it's not just transformed objectives and obsessions. There's more transformation in the works. Because when Christ appears, we will, uh, let's read Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So the reality is, when Christ appears, that means when he returns, we will be raised up to be with him in glory. That's the reality. And we think of all of the garbage that's going on right now, and there is a lot. Like I've said in the prayer, in the uh, international scale, but also locally and nationally. But that's all going to pass. And there is going to be a time where he returns and he appears, as we saw in the book of Revelation, and we will appear with him. That being the case, our response is to put to death what I called or identify as the fleshly sins. And this is transformed desires. Our natural inclination is to drift towards fleshly desires. I did a, a men's conference about 15, 18 years ago on how to have victory over lust. And I jokingly, with my tongue in, in cheek, I started saying, by saying, how many guys in here struggle with lust? And everybody raised their hand except one guy. And he said, I don't struggle at all. It comes really naturally. <laughs> and everybody else said, amen. Those fleshly desires, and this isn't just sexual, it's anything that appeals to the flesh. Uh, it can be uh, food, it can be adrenaline. It's those fleshly desires, but it definitely uh, includes 
sexual sins and sexual deviations from God's design and God's plan. And that's the natural way of humanity. Nobody has to work at accomplishing sexual sin. I, in 45 years of ministry, I've never had anybody come to me and say, John, Rev, whatever they call me, I really have a hard time coming up with sexual temptation. I've never had that. There is an ongoing reality of sexual temptation, and sexual temptation is going to happen. The question is not whether there will be temptation. The question is, how do we deal with it? Do we cave into it? And if we have been raised with Christ, the expectation is that we're going to not yield to it. It says put to death. The picture in the Greek word there is literally executing. You know, when we're out on the porch and we see a, a spider running across the floor, Debbie's temptation is to go and say, John, get it. My temptation is to go up and stomp on it. And I, if you've got a thing for spiders, don't come after me and, and fuss at me for killing spiders. But when we think of those fleshly sins and desires, our responsibility is to put them to death, execute them. Not just plug in here. Guys, pornography is sin. It's not possible to have a little bit of pornography and be okay. God calls us to put those things to death because we've been raised with him. And then the really fun passage, verses 6 through 11. The reality is, at the end of this, we have uh, taken off the old and put on the new. And there is literally in, this, in the Greek imagery the idea of taking off an old garment and putting on a brand new garment. So when we are in Christ, uh, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ... Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so in Christ, we, at the point where we've placed our faith and we surrendered our lives over to the Lord, at that point, we've taken off the old life. And we've put on, and if you will, they're old, dirty, filthy rags. And we've put on the new life that is rich and glorious because it's in Christ. Since that's the reality... How does that affect or change our behavior? Put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self. This is transformed demeanor. When we have taken off the old and put on the new, it means that we move past, we get beyond, I've called them verbal sins, but it's expressing those uh, dark, destructive tendencies of tearing people down. Years ago, in another life, I was uh, an editor and publisher, and I wrote a couple of articles, uh, both of them entitled Sin, uh, uh, Acceptable Sins, the things that are fine with us but are offensive to God. One of the articles was on temper. The second was on slander. 
Because in our circles, sometimes it's easy to think, okay, I just have a bad temper. That's the way I am. You know, I blow up, I let it go, in 10 minutes everything's fine, and it's good. And that's just the way I am. And culture accepts that. And there's some uh, in leadership roles, and we've seen it on television with some of the, the, uh, the various game shows where an individual can be outrageous and scream and shout, and it's okay. The only problem is, it's not. In Christ, when we put on that new garment, it means we do not, we're not afforded the luxury of losing our temper and screaming at our kids or our spouse or our employees or the neighbor who's acting like an idiot. We're not afforded that luxury. Being in Christ gives us a new life that does not display anger and malice, and that malice is ill will towards somebody, or slander, rage in God's economy is not acceptable. Think back to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And interestingly, Paul, in that same passage, gives the fruit of the flesh that includes wrath and malice and anger and rage and sexual sins. The fruit of the flesh, that which the flesh naturally produces, are expressions of anger and rage and fleshly sins. In Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're, we are designed to have a different demeanor in the way we deal with people. There is to be patience and gentleness, not anger and rage. There is to be self-control, not explosion of temper. That's the difference that we're supposed to experience in Christ. So just a time of reflection. Uh, I've got, have you ever seen before and after pictures? You know, with home improvements, you have the, the exterior house uh, before, uh, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines, you have the before, and oh, I hear, ooh, ah. There's, there's an affinity there for, for Chip and Joanne, probably more for Joanne than Chip, uh, women especially. But, but there's the before and the after. And I've got some before and after shots. And I, I've got to preface this. Uh, I, some of you know I'm a, uh, a chaplain for first responders across the state, uh, police, firefighters, EMTs, and dispatchers. And for some time, Debbie and I have had a prayer and a, uh, a dream of having a ministry base, a home, where we can have first responders in uh, for big meals. We do a, a Christmas uh, chili dinner for uh, cops, now it's going to be for all. And when, last time we did it in Stanford, we had 35 cops show up in the course of the day. And Debbie does two big five-gallon cauldrons of chili. Folks, it's good. I'm telling you, it's good. And so we've been dreaming of having a place, uh, and we hit all kinds of obstacles, but... Um, God, in his grace and mercy, opened the door for us to, to get a place in Newtown to build. And as it has all unfolded, we've been able to do it essentially half price of the market value. 
the end result of this is that we're paying less in our mortgage, in our uh, taxes and everything, than we could rent a three-bedroom, two-bath uh, uh, apartment anywhere in Fairfield County. And it's miraculous, and we'll tell you that another story. But here's some of the before. Uh, this was taken uh, two and a half years ago. This was March of 21. This is on top of the hill looking out over the valley. Uh, and this was before any construction started to take place. And then the next slide shows where the house would be. And uh, back then, our builder contractor, and I was the uh, kind of a co-contractor, so I've, I bought all of the materials and hired all the subs, and I've done some of the work myself. But we're standing up there and showing this, and Debbie says, I can't see it. And he says, well, this is where the house is going to be, and this is what it's going to look like. Well, this is two and a half years later, and here's that, pretty much that same angle uh, of the house. And there's a significant transformation there. Uh, this is the house on looking at it from the front. And the next one there. And then you saw the front yard view. This is what it looks like uh, now, sitting on the front porch looking out over that valley. An amazing transformation in two and a half years. Done in an amazing way that only God could have, have, have accomplished. But there's a significant difference there. A transformation. From two and a half years ago, there was just some land that was really rough and rugged and no road coming up that uh, three-acre hill. And two and a half years later, there is a home that is prepared to be a ministry base for first responders. It wasn't free. It was costly. It cost us more than we expected it to cost us. And there was sacrifice involved. But the transformation happened. There is a difference. And I want to plug in here. What I've been talking about this morning isn't to suggest that instantly, as soon as we give our lives to Christ, immediately all of these changes take place. That house did not happen overnight. We didn't close on the deal and boom the next day or the next month or the next year even. It was all there. Once we signed the contract and closed on the mortgage, that started it, but it took time to get it to that point. That's the way it is with our, our life in Christ. Once we give our life to Christ, I don't immediately have instant control over my thoughts and my tongue, what I say on my objectives and my, my obsessions, the things that I think about. And I wouldn't want anybody to think that that's the case. And as we've pointed out so many times, doing, making those kinds of changes, trying to rein in some of those thoughts, that's not what makes us right with God. Being right with God is what ultimately results in these things. But the point for this morning is this. I'd like for you, in this time of reflection, to think back. If you have indeed placed your faith in Jesus Christ, look back 
to before that happened. The objectives, the obsessions, the uh, desires, uh, the demeanor, what were they like then? What are they like today? Is there a difference? Is there at least progress so that my objectives are shifting more to be in line with the king's objectives? My thoughts are becoming more and more aligned with the king's uh, agenda. My desires and my demeanor are being transformed to be consistent with his work on the cross. Because of who Christ is, the almighty king of the universe, who sacrificed everything in love for us, because of who he is, it should make a difference. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and prepare to lead us in closing prayer, but I would invite you to sit down, maybe this afternoon, and take time to reflect and say, Lord, have I had an improper view of Christ? Do I need to readjust and start thinking of him as the king who has absolute ownership and authority over me and deserves my ultimate reverence and respect? Do I need to readjust my thought that he's not just there for me, I'm actually there for him? Are there ways that I need to make an adjustment here? Stop and write, what were, were my obsessions and my objectives and my demeanor and my desires, were they different than they are now? Were they uh, more in line with the world, and are those things changing? And if not, a good opportunity to say, Lord, please help me to experience the difference that Christ is supposed to make in my life. My life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done. All of this is miraculous, and we could not have done any of it. The only way we have access to you is because of who you are and what you've done because of your love. So Father, help us to yield ourselves over to you. Help us to allow you to do this transforming work in our hearts, our minds, our soul, our bodies, so that your presence, so that the reality of your character, your compassion radiates out through us to a dark world who obviously is in desperate need of seeing that light. We ask this because only you can do it. We can't do it. And we thank you in Jesus' name.